Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this uh, new event of the Middle East Institute. It's a great pleasure uh, to be with you for uh, one hour, for those of you in the auditorium, as well as those joining us on uh, Zoom. Uh, we have with us uh, a team from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy coming uh, from DC, or actually technically coming from Japan, if I understand correctly, uh, joining us uh, today. So we have uh, uh, directly on my uh, uh, right, uh, Anna Borchevskaya, who's a senior fellow at the Institute uh, in the program dedicated to great power competition and the Middle East, focusing on Russia's policy toward the region. She's a former analyst for the uh, for a U.S. military contractor in Afghanistan, and she has also served as communication director at the American Islamic Congress. She was previously with the Atlantic Council and the Peterson Institute for International Economics and uh, among various uh, publications. Let me mention that she authored one book uh, last year, Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's Absence. With her as well, we have Grant Rumley, who's a Goldberger Fellow at the Washington Institute, uh, also in the program on the Great Power Competition and the Middle East, where he specializes in military and security affairs. Uh, from 2018 to 2021, Grant served in both the Trump and the Biden administration as advisor for Middle East policy in the office of the Secretary of Defense, where he focused on Syria and Israel. He's the co-author of one book, The Last Palestinian, The Rise and the Reign of Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, uh, let me apologize also for Michael Singh, who uh, could not uh, join us, uh, although he's on the program. Uh, what we will do is we'll start with uh, some initial talks uh, by both speakers for about five to ten minutes, and then we'll uh, open it uh, to uh, questions and answers. Uh, comments as well. Uh, for those of you on Zoom, uh, if you'd like to ask a question or just uh, express a comment, uh, you can do so in the chat box by asking uh, a question to MEI event. Uh, but now, without further ado, I'll, I'll leave uh, the floor to Anna. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you very much for this uh, for this kind introduction. Uh, I'd like to start by saying a few words about great great power competition uh, from the U.S. foreign policy perspective. Uh, as this audience is probably aware, the trajectory of American foreign policy uh, has shifted in recent years from uh, about a, a 20 years focus on counterterrorism to great power competition. Uh, when several years ago, our national security strategy named Russia and China as top uh, competitors uh, to the United States. And so we find ourselves uh, in a new world with a new foreign policy focus, uh, whereas as, where, as we look at Russia and China, uh, both present different challenges. Uh, and that is one of my main, that's one of the main points that I'd like uh, to leave you with. Uh, the revised document of the National Security Strategy has different language in, in how it describes Russia and China. Uh, Russia is named as a, a, an acute threat, and China is more of a, a persistent, if I may, uh, if I recall the, the terminology correctly. But one way or the other, um, from an American foreign policy perspective, the American government looks at China more as a long-term 
uh, challenger, whereas Russia is more of a short-term problem. Uh, of course, we can have a discussion about uh, the merits of this approach, but but that is that is that is the world, uh, th that is the foreign policy world that we that we need to, to to grapple with. And the second point is is that because this focus on great power competition is new, relatively new for, for the United States. We're, we're having a lot of debates, discussions, uh, and trying to grapple with how to pursue this great power competition. Uh, a country like Russia, uh, a, a country that I am an expert in, uh, never left the framework of great power competition. When the Cold War ended, uh, the West felt that the end of history essentially has come. Uh, liberalism had triumphed. Communism has uh, proven to be a failure. And many in the West were optimistic about the rise of liberalism in places like Russia. Unfortunately, we, we've seen that that's not the case anymore. And so from an American perspective, which is what we're here to present, from an American perspective, uh, we're having very different conversations. Uh, and we're facing, we're looking at how to handle both Russia and China simultaneously. These are, these, are, uh, these are different priorities. And the hallmark of any great power is the ability to handle more than one priority at the same time. Uh, that, that, is, that, that is a challenge uh, facing the United States today. Uh, my, the second uh, large uh, major point that I'd like to make, and I'm hoping we can get more into this during Q&A, is specifically the Russia-China relationship. Uh, the, the, much has been said about the Russia-China dynamic, and certainly there's a lot more to be said now in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has shifted, arguably, this dynamic between Russia and China. Uh, but in terms of uh, the my big takeaway, if I may, that I'd like to leave you with, uh, is that Years ago, Russia, the Russian government has de facto accepted a junior position uh, to, to China. Now, of course, long term, uh, Russia would not want to be second to anyone. But uh, the overriding uh, principle guiding Russian foreign policy under Vladimir Putin has been the focus on the West NATO, but the West at large uh, as an adversary, uh, and th the perception of the West as a force that is out to weaken Russia has been so overwhelming. It, it has been an overriding principle if you look at all Russian uh, government decisions. So much so that, at least in the short term, the Russian government was willing to, again, de facto, I want to emphasize de facto, accept uh, a junior position vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, and uh, I'd like to stop there so we can have more room for discussion and turn it over to Grant. Thank you. Sure, great. Uh, can everyone hear me all right? Uh, wonderful. Well, first off, uh, thank you, Jean-Luc, for, for moderating this, and uh, and thank you, MEI, for hosting us. It's it's a great honor to be here and to be speaking with our our friends here at MEI and to, and to be in Singapore at this at this important time. I think I think you know as as Anna uh, perfectly encapsulated, there is a we're at a moment of a pretty serious shift in American foreign policy. Uh, for a number of years, the U.S. has tried to make this uh, this shift in focus to uh, to China and to Russia as as was made famous in sort of our pivot under the uh, Obama administration, but. The Middle East gets a say, and uh, and the Middle East at that time, uh, through the Arab Spring, through the rise of ISIS, uh, dictated a, a refocus or a renewed focus in American attention and international attention in the Middle East. But one of the legacies of, of the Defeat ISIS coalition is that the U.S. sort of identified 
a way of prosecuting this uh, this war on terror, this um, this this counterterrorism effort with limited means, uh, what we called in the, in the Department of Defense sort of by, with, and through, uh, empowering local partners uh, and working with them to, uh, to sort of maintain this, uh, this, this CT effort. And uh, the legacy of that was that it freed up the bandwidth uh, and, and some of the resources to begin to think about focusing elsewhere. As, as Anna pointed out, it was, it was a couple of years ago the National Defense Strategy said, China and Russia are the uh, organizing threat, the organizing principle uh, for the U.S. military. And when the NDS was released, Secretary Mattis actually said the war on terror is is no longer the key priority for the department moving forward. We will still continue to to prosecute this war on terror, but we need to start shifting our focus elsewhere. And, you know, if there's one thing that D.C. can agree on right now, it's it's the need to focus on China and Russia and on great power competition. And you see that in the Biden administration's national defense strategy, which just came out and echoes very much similar themes to what we saw in the Trump administration's national defense strategy. And so I think for the Middle East, there's there's a number of key takeaways here. I, I think one thing the U.S. and our partners are going to have to grapple with is sort of the the balancing act between the Middle East as uh, as both somewhat diminished in strategic importance for the U.S., uh, but also increased in importance, I think, in this uh, international competition. And so if if the U.S. is perhaps not as a, not as reliant on the Middle East uh, for uh, for energy supplies, if we're uh, no longer prosecuting two uh, two large wars uh, in the Middle East, if Americans have sort of soured in in terms of their appetite for more involvement in the Middle East, it, it may have diminished slightly, but uh, uh, from a U.S. perspective, but that does not mean that it's diminished strategically at all. And in, in fact, I think. Uh, Anne and I would both agree that that Russia and in particular China view it as as a key element uh, in its competition with the U.S. But also, I think as Ukraine is showing uh, the Middle East and its position as an energy supplier to the global market still has uh, uh, a lot of significance and importance. And so, the U.S. has to navigate this this balance between a focus on countering Russia and Europe and uh, countering China in the Indo-Pacific. And so uh, how, how to do that is, uh, is the topic of, of quite a serious debate in DC. And it, it leads to another sort of takeaway, and that's the importance of American partnerships in American foreign policy. And, uh, and that to enact smart policies that get at the heart of competing with China and Russia, the real strength of US foreign policy is in its international network of partners and allies. And so that is that is both in the Middle East, but it's also abroad. It's here in the Indo-Pacific. It's in Europe. And so how best to maximize those relationships in regards to the competition in the Middle East is is a subject of, of key debate and one we're hoping to uh, to definitely dive into a little bit more. And then the sort of the third takeaway, I think, just in general, is the idea that the U.S., especially from a security standpoint, is going to have to learn how to do uh, more or the same with less in the Middle East. There is simply just not enough of the U.S. military to go around. And days of sending one aircraft carrier, two aircraft carriers, and 100,000 boots on the grounds to the Middle East are, I think, long gone. 
and uh, and so how best to position ourselves to be both effective in countering Russia and China in the region while also focusing in uh, theaters elsewhere is something that uh, I think both the Washington Institute but also uh, policymakers in DC are actively trying to explore. And so I'll probably I'll probably stop there. I'm most curious to hear to hear your questions and uh, and looking forward to a great discussion. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for both of you to, uh, I mean, uh, you uh, you address the challenge of uh, throwing all the big challenges in only a few minutes. Uh, just to let the the, the, the audience uh, digest uh, uh, what you uh, just covered, I'll, uh, I'll start with uh, uh, questions or uh, maybe uh, uh, remarks that I'd like you to comment. Uh, and Anna, you, 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 very uh, uh, clearly specified the differences between Russia and China, uh, because when we talk about great power competition, there's all there's this as assumption that uh, both fall under the same category. Uh, but when it comes to the Middle East, and I liked you, uh, uh, I liked your thoughts on that. I mean, it seems to me that uh, the great power competition narrative seen from Washington was driven by the presence or the growing presence of China in the Middle East, that it was more about China than about Russia, except that from a security perspective, it seems to me that Russia is a much more consequential actor in the Middle East than China. I mean, uh, China didn't uh, organize any military intervention in the Middle East, contrary to Russia. So you said Russia, at least from an American perspective, is seen as a short-term uh, challenge, uh, while China would be a long-term challenge, correct? American government. But if we look at specifically the security dimension, would you say the same thing, that uh, China in the Middle East would be uh, a security challenge? Because it seems that as of today, the security challenge would be much more Russia than uh, China. Uh, so that will be uh, uh, my question. And for for Grant, I mean, the you you said uh, that, and I think it's a, an important message that, that the U.S. has to do less in terms of uh, resources in the Middle East. Uh, but at the same time, it it wants to uh, uh, to uh, to convince its partners uh, in the region. Uh, with regards to the great power competition, that, as you said, the two priorities are to uh, counter Russia in Europe, uh, while uh, I don't know if we can say containing or um, managing the rise of China in the Indo-Pacific. But for Middle Eastern countries that look at Russia and China increasingly as potential partners, uh, how would you make that uh, argument uh, because what they see is that the US is doing less, but at the same time asking more from them. Uh, so how, how do you make, how do you reconcile these two uh, uh, developments? Sure, sure, I'll start. Sorry, I'll start. So the question you asked about Russia and China in the Middle East really has multiple layers. Uh, so I'll try, I'll try, I'll try to see if I can unpack uh, all of them, or at least, uh, or at least most. First, uh, to your point about China in the Middle East versus Russia in the Middle East, uh, the fact of the matter is, um, China, modern China, uh, modern China is a relative newcomer to the Middle East. It is a relatively unknown entity in the region. And primarily uh, over the last uh, approximately two decades have focused more on economic issues. 
Russia uh, is a completely different story. Uh, uh, Russia never really left the region, and really from its founding as an independent, an independent polity, one way or the other, had a relationship, ha had a strong connection to this region. Its very identity uh, developed as Imperial Russia grew uh, in, in close proximity to the Middle East. Uh, certainly when you look at, you, you know, from the perspective of great power competition, which is the theme of our discussion, right, in the last several centuries, uh, the Middle East was an arena of great power competition, and Russia, whether it be an imperial Russia or Soviet Russia, played a central role in that competition. Uh, and with the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, certainly in the 1990s, Russia entered a unique period in its history where for the first time it, um, I want to emphasize briefly and partially retreated from the region. I want to emphasize partially because there were a number of other re relationships, a number of other number of positions that Russia continued to retain. And certainly under Vladimir Putin, uh, Russia worked steadily and consistently to, to return uh, to the Middle East. So th this is a very big difference in Russia versus China in this region. And uh, the region, for its part, is uh, much more familiar with Russia th than it is with China. It is certainly true that Vladimir Putin's intervention in Syria in September 2015 officially returned Russia to the Middle East map. This was the first Russian intervention outside the former, uh, the, outside the post-Soviet space. And uh, for a whole host of other other reasons, it, it was it was fairly unique, it, and we can talk about this in more detail. It was significant in a number of ways, and the region has certainly taken note of that. But I want to emphasize that Russia was already in the region under Vladimir Putin and had exercised all sorts of power in addition to the security dimension. Uh, in a, so in a sense, the Syria intervention was a logical conclusion of, of a number of factors that came together, and it had to do with uh, Russia's perception of the West, uh, Russia's um, uh, history in terms of getting away with previous interventions, uh, and a whole host of other calculations uh, that, that came together that Syria really encapsulated. So again, my first, if I may summarize, my first part of the, my answer to your question is that uh, Russia never left, and Russia was an important player in the region uh, prior to the intervention. But of course, the intervention uh, was a significant factor in putting uh, bringing Russia back. Right now, uh, the other part of your question about about these two powers in the region is uh, American perception of these powers. Uh, when uh, Vladimir Putin went into Syria, uh, President Barack Obama famously predicted that Russia would find itself in a quagmire. And that is, Russia would overextend itself and find uh, itself in a very similar scenario that the Soviet Union found itself in Afghanistan several decades earlier. But Syria had proven to be a completely different story altogether. And uh, that, uh, and the fact of the matter is, Russia secured a vital strategic position at very low cost and at the expense of the United States. So uh, Russia is in the region to stay. And uh, now, because of the war in Ukraine, uh, certainly Russia is trying to expand as little resources as possible, but it still retains an important position. And the region, for its part, and this is, the, I guess, another part of your, your question, um, uh, the region, uh, as it looks at this great power competition between uh, Russia, China, and the United States, um, 
has concluded has not um, ha ha does not want to choose sides, does not want to take sides, uh, and tends to look at everything that's happening in in very long term uh, trends. We can go country by country, but that's a broad uh, synopsis. So that puts us back again into the point that Grant was making about the importance of Middle East as an arena of great power competition. Yeah, I I mean it's it's a great question, Sean Loop. Uh, the uh, how to do uh, more with less. Uh, I, I, I think th the big issue is we're trying to reconcile asking partners to maintain the status quo, if not improve the relationship with the U.S. in a strategic environment where we are just simply not as attentive uh, and at, at some points invested in the Middle East as we were in the past. And uh, and that's not only just in measuring uh, troops or assets on the ground, but that's also in senior leader engagement and in cabinet visits. It took, you know, I mean, uh, there's, there's COVID restrictions and there's Ukraine, sure, but it did take the president uh, a year and a half to visit the Middle East, which in the past 20 years is a rather unheard of uh, uh, phenomena. Uh, so I, I I think what we need to do, what we have emerging in the Middle East is, I think, a, a, an unaligned uh, expectations. Both sides see and expect more of the U.S., uh, and, and the U.S. perhaps has expectations of its partners that it sees as, as sort of unfulfilled and you you know in you know this well Jean Loup you just got back from the region this is a region that sometimes measures commitment in terms of boots on the ground in terms of military presence uh, and that's just not a feasible assessment uh, to make in an era where there's a land war in Ukraine and China is uh, building ships like it's going out of fashion and uh, and doing all types of power projection in the Indo-Pacific that requires uh, more more pressing U.S. military engagement. And so I think this has led our partners in the Middle East to naturally hedge, to balance between uh, the U.S. and our adversaries. Uh, but this creates inherent tension in the relationship. This isn't like uh, the Cold War, where a, a country could buy Soviet tanks and then try to buy U.S. jets. You can't really do that when it comes to Chinese platforms. You can't really do that with some of the cooperation that we see emerging uh, with China. I mean, I'll give you a good example. The reason the F-35 negotiations with the UAE collapsed was was the the status of UAE's relationship with China. Uh, and the U.S. has gone around the world and looked at countries that have Huawei as its primary 5G supplier and very kindly, uh, and sometimes very sometimes not so kindly, asked them to take it down. The UK is the is the great example. It was in part because of uh, the risks associated with that level of cooperation with China infringing upon the security relationship with the U.S. Uh, and so I, I think... What we need to do is is uh, approach our partners and and sort of lay out our vision for the relationship, our vision for all the things we want to accomplish from a security and defense standpoint, uh, and then sort of make it clear what would preclude that level of cooperation. And so, it, to my mind, I think we should be opening up co-production. We should be uh, expanding defensive capabilities of our longstanding partners in the region, but that requires i think a certain level of trust in the relationship and so it will be very difficult i think for for partners to 
have their cake and eat it too and buy uh, certain things from China and try to buy from the U.S. as well. And so this is going to be a new feature of this competition. And we will, we, you know, so far we haven't been navigating it perhaps as well as we should. Uh, but I think, I think the initial turbulence will hopefully give way to, to redoubling down on some of these partnerships. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, let me ask another uh, uh, follow-up question, and then I'll, uh, I'll turn to uh, my colleagues in the room. Uh, and it, it's a follow-up because uh, I was listening to both of you, and uh, I thought about the recent decision of uh, Saudi Arabia and the OPEC uh, Plus Group uh, to uh, reduce their production uh, of oil barrels. And seen from Singapore, uh, there was uh, much interest in how the U.S. reacted, and uh, it was almost uh, seen as a personal, uh, personal attack uh, or personal uh, defiance against uh, President Biden, ha that who just visited uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'd be very curious, and I guess uh, our audience would be very curious on, on how do you perceive the current narrative that seemed to be prevailing in uh, the U.S. media that. Uh, this is an indicator that Saudi Arabia is siding with Russia. I think uh, there was an op-ed in Politico from two senators that I think described that as uh, Saudi Arabia is aligning uh, or allying with uh, our greatest enemy. Uh, that's the first question. The second question is, what can we expect as a consequence? If that's the narrative, if that's the perception that is prevailing today in the U.S., do you see potential great consequences for the U.S.-Saudi relations? Uh, could that lead to a review of the partnership, military decisions, and so on? I mean, that's speculation, obviously, but how do you see uh, that even, that decision impacting the relation? I'll, I'll, how about I'll start and I'll pass it over to, to Grant. Grant. Grant will uh, correct me. <laughs> Uh, so, in short, is Saudi Arabia aligning with uh, the greatest enemy? Uh, not exactly. Uh, not not exactly. There are several aspects of the situation. Uh, one is that Russia, in particular, has made a lot of headways in the region. And, and to your earlier point, it was not just in the security realm. Russia had de facto established itself as a, again. I want to stress de facto a member of as a member of OPEC plus, uh, and. Uh, well, and so from the Saudi perspective, uh, a relationship with Russia, regardless one way or the other, was going to be important. Uh, and if you look at how, again, the react reactions to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Saudi Arabia was not unique in uh, seeing things in, in, in far less black and white terms, if you will. Uh, in also simply not understanding the history between Russia and Ukraine, uh, and a whole, for a whole host of reasons, the region simply reacted uh, differently uh, than the West did. Uh, but the other side of this uh, issue is um, uh, poor management of the United States of the relationship. Uh, and this goes to your point uh, about about the visit, and maybe Grant can say a few things about that. So uh, I will, but I, but I, I want to. And on the point that it's, yes, Russia is a part of it, but the other part of it, and this is always the case when you talk about Russia, it, Russia tends to define itself in relation to the West anyway. And so the, the issue here is how the West, uh, particularly the United States, has handled the relationship with, with its very long-term strategic partner, who, let's not forget, during the Cold War, has helped 
uh, change oil prices that ultimately were a major contributing factor to the fall of the Soviet Union, perhaps much more so than, than the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and then the second uh, a, a question, uh, what can we expect? Well, I think it, it goes to the uncertainty of American politics uh, and how this relationship is going to continue to evolve. And certainly at this stage, it, it looks fairly difficult. And I'll, I'll, I'm, I'd be curious what Grant thinks. <laughs> well. Yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily have an optimistic take. Uh, you know, I I think the 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 Saudi decision was, you know, perhaps there was some personal uh, political motivations there, but I'm not as I'm not as receptive. I think to to that argument. I think the OPEC plus arrangement uh, has benefited the the OPEC plus countries and. Uh, the that market is a national security concern for Saudi Arabia, and they have their own uh, economic interests for making their decision. And I, I, I think when when you view their calculation through that lens, uh, it it makes it a little bit easier to to I think understand. And uh, it's certainly you know the issue at play was was the timing, but also the context, uh, and it. It takes two to tango, and you know when when the president called Saudi Arabia uh, a pariah on the campaign trail, and then didn't walk back the comments uh, ahead of the trip. You know you can you can find yourself in a uh, a sort of slip slippery slope of um, of perhaps escalating rhetoric that uh, that is ultimately unhelpful because I do think the Saudi relationship is a very important one for the U.S. Uh, in the region. It's uh, it's one of the most important relationships. And uh, right now we have this this really tough dynamic in in Washington where uh, so much of our pivot to great power competition hinges on our partnerships and maintaining our partnerships in the region uh particularly with the Saudi, with with Saudi Arabia and yet you will never lose votes in American politics if you uh if you sort of criticize Saudi Arabia it's 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 not the most popular country with the American public uh and that you know there's many different reasons for that the the war in Yemen uh the Jamal Khashoggi uh um assassination and so from both right and left in American politics, you can you can find ample criticism of Saudi Arabia and uh, and not really worry about losing uh, uh, any popularity over it. And so, we have to navigate that balance uh, in our relationships. I think our partners need to be uh, a little bit more cognizant of that, uh, perhaps. Uh, and um, and when the power of the purse rests in Congress uh, and and approving major arms sales rests with rests with Congress. It behooves, I think, a lot of our partners to 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 weigh that consideration and and from our standpoint to help our partners sort of navigate uh, that dynamic. And so, uh, what are the implications for it? it it's going to be a tricky uh, uh, path to to walk, I think. But uh, I I think the answer is more consistent, determined U.S. engagement in the region that uh, works with our partners uh, professionally to help them sort of navigate it, so that we can still. Uh, uh, maintain these very important relationships. Thank you very much. That wasn't too pessimistic, I would say. Um, let me turn to uh, our my colleague, uh, Georgi. And uh, could we bring the microphone, please? Thank you, not to rely on my vocal cords. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm George Bustin from the Middle East Institute. Uh, Anna, if you allow me, the question is to you. 
um, you defined the relationship of China and Russia as Russia playing the junior partner role. And um, I, I was wondering whether uh, this is not a definition too nice to Russia. And I ask you this question because uh, uh, thinking about it um, more deeply, you wonder that other than energy, what can Russia provide China? Of course, you can say a political support, but that is uh, something that is not tangible. Uh, we are aware that uh, Russia's other great uh, strengths uh, previously, and it's one of its great export items, military technology, has uh, proven uh, such a dismal failure in the Ukraine war that I strongly doubt that uh, uh, a power like China would be genuinely interested. So here comes the question. Of course, this is not a partnership of equals, but even if we look at energy as a commodity that Russia has a lot and is very much in need in China, how will that energy get there? Because Russia was geared to provide energy for Europe uh, primarily. Now that story is over. Would Russia have the capacity and the time to build an infrastructure that could uh, be genuinely important in providing to China and for that matter to India? Thank you. Sure, sure, great question. Thank you very much. I will do my best to answer it uh, to the insofar as that I'm not a technical energy expert, but I will try to tackle it as best I can. So uh, you make a number you make a number of great points. Uh, first of all, uh, the war, I think what you're alluding to is the again, the war in Ukraine that has uh, shifted uh, shifted the dynamic for for everyone, including uh, the specific dynamic between Russia uh, and China. Um, you had mentioned uh, that uh, uh, that Russia has little to offer to China and uh, political support is not tangible. I'm not sure if that's entirely the case, at least not yet, because Russia still remains a permanent member of the UN Security Council. And certainly when it comes to uh, voting together with China, uh, there's a fairly consistent record here uh, the, the, over the years on, on a whole host of issues, and particularly when it comes to the Middle East, when it comes to Syria, uh, uh, but but certainly a, whole, a, a lot of other countries. Uh, so, um, and I should add to that a small caveat. When I had talked about the broader Russia-China relationship, I was looking in globally, specifically in the Middle East. Uh, what has developed is a more complicated dynamic of division of labor, where Russia tended to focus more in the security realm and China focused more on the economic realm. That's not, a, that is certainly not a situation of competition. That's a situation of, again, uh, working, uh, at least de facto working together. And again, prior prior to the war in Ukraine, if anything, China looked towards Russia for its military expertise. And again, here's where it gets very interesting because the war in Ukraine has shifted that. But the fact of the matter is the Chinese military has not, uh, in recent memory, has not fought any wars, whereas the Russian military had Georgia uh, in 2008, Ukraine in 2014, uh, Syria in 2015. And uh, 
you, it, you know, it's hard to argue with actual live military uh, training, which is what the Russian military had and China lacked. Um, it, it, you are correct. I think that the Ukraine, situ the, the war in Ukraine is changing that, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions as to how it's changing it. Uh, certainly when it comes to the, uh, the performance of Russian military hardware, yes, we've seen a lot of failures, but it's not a, but it's not a black and white picture. Uh, because it, when it comes to most of the fighting done on the ground, it's done through traditional Russian uh, military strength, and that's have, that's artillery. And uh, Russia still has a lot of that ammunition to go around, and it has not been failing uh, in terms of performance. So again, I think it's a little bit more of a nuanced picture. Um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to energy, again. I, uh, you know, can Russia build infrastructure? Uh, maybe a lot depends on how the war is is going to continue to unfold. And here, I'd like to emphasize that the war is not over. Uh, we're certainly going to see fighting uh, fighting come spring. Um, it's been very easy, I think, in the West, looking at the gains that Ukrainians had made. Uh, to be sometimes a little bit, to, to rush to conclusions, put it this way. Though it, nothing is over until it's over, and uh, there's still a lot of fighting left to go, and Russia still has a lot of resources to bring to bear, even as it's suffering uh, unprecedented losses on the ground. So from, I think from China's perspective, there are a lot of advantages here. Uh, again, uh, how China can position itself in a far more advantageous position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Russia, but because the story is not over, I don't want to jump to conclusions. Can I can I actually jump in on that real quick? Uh, there, just one quick thing on on what you said about the appeal of Russian military hardware. I, I think this is a this is a topic of of serious debate right now, as well as the future of of Russian arms in the international market. And you know, they, I hear a lot that uh, the experience in Ukraine is going to diminish the appeal of Russian platforms, but I don't think I agree. I, I think there's a difference between capabilities and efficacy. And the way the Russians have used some of their uh, uh, premier platforms isn't exactly inspiring, but that doesn't take away from the capability necessarily of the specific platforms. If you could get your hand on an S-400 radar system right now, you you would probably get your hand on an S-400 right now. And China's uh, fighter jet corps was almost entirely dependent on Russian engines uh, to build up their initial uh, capacity. They're now developing their own indigenous engines. But in addition to what Anna flagged of, of sort of the lessons learned of, of armed conflict, it's some of the technical and technological aspects of uh, Russia's military is still appealing to a lot of countries looking to develop their own defense industrial base. And so I, I think there's still plenty more that the Russians can offer uh, China as as the as the junior partner in this relationship. And I'm I'm not quite certain we've seen the last of Russian arms on the on the international market. Next questions from uh, Asif. Hello. Uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it's very important to know what all is happening in Washington, D.C., what kind of discourses they are entering into, because it will have global replications. Uh, we are talking about uh, uh, the actions that the U.S. has been taking in terms of countering its two main uh, enemies, that is, or rivals, uh, Russia and uh, China. Uh, if we specifically talk about China, because uh, that is in our region, Indo-Pacific region, and if we 
talk in terms of looking for allies and partners at, as far as U.S. Uh, approach is concerned. We see ASEAN is a, a very important block uh, region uh, here, uh, and Singapore has been a very important uh, partner of that in a country's block. If I look at correctly, their views in terms of uh, U.S.-China rivalry has been that we won't take sides if it comes to that. Uh, don't ask us to choose, we won't, right? So I would like to know what kind of uh, you know policies in Washington uh, they're working on in terms of countering that stance. That is one. The other is about the global uh, global uh, you know approach to dealing with China, and that is uh, uh, because China has been having relationship with many of the Middle Eastern countries because of oil. Uh, uh, U.S. is uh, the number one oil producer country. OPEC is oil producing and exporting countries, but OPEC plus U.S. is not a member. Uh, I feel that if U.S. could be a member of OPEC plus, it could have very strong leeway over China in terms of energy fight. So if there is any discussion in that domain happening in Washington, D.C., it would be very useful to know. Thank you. Oh, well, I, I was kind of hoping someone here would be able to explain what's happening in D.C. to me. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. It's the million dollar question right now. I, I, I think, uh, this administration, but, but also both Republicans and Democrats are wary of turning, uh, our competition with China into a, a zero sum competition a la the cold war. Uh, I, I, but I, I think, and at least I worry that, uh, we might not be able to prevent that. Uh, so this current administration, you see, they're very careful in their in their language. They talk a lot about responsible competition. This is what came out of uh, Bali as well. We've talked about competing where we can with China responsibly, and then cooperating in other fields uh, like like climate, like COVID, uh, potentially. Um, and so, I I think what they're looking for is sort of a middle of that Venn diagram, and then from there you can sort of create some of the parameters with other countries to understand how to navigate their own relationship with China. I, I think we also struggle a little bit because that approach can be a little inconsistent uh, in the same administration has also sort of had the democracy summit where democracies versus autocracies and that that is zero sum that is sort of mutually exclusive and that does have I think the unintended uh, consequence of uh, putting putting countries into different categories and so I think we need to be uh, a little more flexible in terms of of some of the language and uh, and some of sort of our our approach to these partnerships. Uh, but but also, I think we're still identifying the parameters of our own relationship with China, and that creates uh, a bit of a lag with our partners. And another unintended consequence is it creates some turbulence at times. So I think the U.S. we need to be a bit more accommodating and accepting that. Uh, as we pivot into this new strategic focus, there's going to be uh, turbulence and sometimes undue turbulence uh, among our partners as they try to calibrate their foreign policy uh, alongside alongside ours as well. And so, I think it's a it's it's a balancing act. As for the second question about OPEC Plus, I I, I have no clue. I don't know. That's that's not something that well, I'm not in D.C. So, but that's not something you'd hear in D.C. So, since I'm not there, I can say that pretty confidently uh, that I don't know. I don't have a good answer on the OPEC Plus question. I don't know if you do. I don't have a good answer uh, either. But I think your question highlights uh, the challenges that we're facing, that we're all trying to grapple with. Uh, I can only uh, second Grant's point about the importance of partnerships. Uh, and to go back to my earlier point about 
the shift in, in American foreign policy thinking. And what the question you're asking really goes uh, to the heart of the issue in, in that um, we, are, we are grappling with these issues at the moment because we fundamentally shifted our focus in foreign policy and bureaucracies uh, in all democratic countries are slow to change. Uh, and we're in this situation, we're trying to change, we're shifting, uh, we're having these conversations, we're having debates. Um, one of the key debates, specifically when it comes to the Middle East, is whether or not the Middle East is a distraction or of great power competition or an arena for it. And we, of course, argue that it's an, it's an arena of great power competition, but the fact that it's a matter of debate and a very intense debate, uh, I think, highlights the challenge of the issue. And so um yeah i uh, i think it just uh, again uh, the importance of partnerships now are going to be even more important so let me let me say something okay so let me say something about about uh being the arena for the great power politics <laughs> because southeast asia historically um has been quite a bit of an arena and we have actually faced what you see now happening in the Middle East. You know, I mean, the Vietnam War was when America made a decision that it needed to cut its losses and move out, right? And in that time, ASEAN was formed. Mm. You know, ASEAN was formed essentially because if you look up to the time of the formation of ASEAN, the South Southeast Asia always had some kind of war, whether it was a civil war, internecine, or it was uh, one of these great powers coming in, you know, and we've had the Russians here, they were the Soviets. You, you, We've always had to deal with China. China lives right next door to us. And we've had the Americans here. And it's a question of how you balance it, you know. So for me, it's very interesting to watch what goes on in the Middle East. And, you know, they're, they're sometimes they're not, then they're upset. They don't understand why this dynamic happens. Uh, you know, is there less interest? Is there less focus? I think that... Uh, some of the lessons that we've learned in Southeast Asia is that it's about how to balance the different partners. Mm -hmm. And it's a very difficult balancing act. You know, ASEAN has all these plus dialogues. They have it with China. They have it with the United States. You know, they're dialogue partners. Why does ASEAN do something like this? Um, it's for our own survival, but it is also about um, uh, the maritime you know, and at the end of the day, you have to look at that as well. Mm -hmm. You know, why does the U.S. have the fleets that it has? You know, there is a maritime. It's about keeping the international sea lanes open as well. You know, it's about the navigational rights as well. And I think in, in Southeast Asia and in ASEAN, we recognize this. And, you know, to be very honest, so do the Chinese and so do the Americans and so do the Russians. They all understand this. But of course, there will be this jostling, you know. With the Middle East, there's some of that, but there's also the issue of... Um, uh, there was there was the issue of oil. It is less so of an issue, but it doesn't mean that the Middle East is strategically any less important to other parts of the world. You know, um, yes, the U.S. is because of fracking is much more independent. It no longer is so reliant on the on on the Middle East for for oil. But it doesn't mean that the U.S. then thinks that the Middle East is any less important internationally or globally. So I entirely take your point. You know, I mean, I agree about that. I think for the Middle East countries, it is a it is an unknown new world that they're going to have to deal with. The dynamic has shifted, and this happens historically all the time. You know, I I I'm less worried about what goes on in the Middle East because I think because we live in in Southeast Asia, we've seen this, and you know, we have other issues that we need to deal with as well. 
the big players coming in is always going to be an issue there. You know what I mean? There's always going to be an arena of some kind. The South China Sea is contested for a very specific reason. It is about maritime and about lanes, you know. So there will always be that jostling. And it's the, the same reason why in the Middle East, uh, the United States still keeps a fleet there, you know. There, there are lanes there that need to be kept open so that, you know, everyone can do, you know. And why piracy has been such a big issue at the United Nations and why countries, even Singapore has actually sent ships to to help to combat, you know, some of this this issue of piracy. You know, I mean, so far the Gulf of uh, the, the for Aden and all that, it's very far from us. But why do we do it? Because we depend on maritime trade as a country, right? And many of the Southeast Asian countries recognize this, you know, there's a lot, they all seafaring peoples, you know, historically. So there, there's this sort of thing. So I, when I look at the Middle East, you know, I mean, when there's always this hand wringing that, oh, the United States is no longer interested. I'm like, it's not that they're not interested, they're, they're calibrating. And everyone does that, you know. Um, how long can you put boots on the ground? It's not infinite, you know. And there's a massive domestic backlash after that, you know, I mean, if you look at Europe, why was the European Union formed? There was a very specific reason, never again. There were already two world wars, you know what I mean? So there's always this, this sort of concern and this uh, this sort of uh, sort of uh, conundrum in a way. And then the dynamic that has to be dealt with, you know. So, I mean, my I always feel that um, uh, there'll be quite a bit of this uh, sort of upset now, even among the Israelis, you know, they're, they're a little upset as well. And then everyone will sort of settle down because you know you 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 learn to find that balance uh, and among the great powers you know will that rivalry go away no it's been around for centuries every century someone writes about it you know I mean there are books written about the great game in Afghanistan what was it it was also rivalry perhaps different empires and regimes you know but it happened it happened you know and Europe is such an old continent they've had so many of these conflicts you know you you have this rivalry it's just the players sometimes change, sometimes they're always there, you know. What interests me is 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 China's role in the Middle East, you know, as we talked earlier on, and I think there's some ambivalence on their part. They are looking for markets, I think, you know, markets for themselves, but also resources because they're huge, you know. They will come out of this whole COVID uh, thing and whatever they're going through now, and 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 they will come out and and they will actually continue to thrive. And you know, you were right. It's about the economics more than anything else. You know what I mean? But there's also a newly confident and assertive China, and I think that's not going to go away. You know what I mean? And so this jostling between the United States and China, they have to find that footing and that equilibrium. I think the fact that President Biden and presidency actually met right tells you something already because clearly both recognize that okay, you know, we've taken this sort of uh, this sort of uh, tension as far as either of us practically wants to take it. And then we need to think about the pragmatics mm -hmm. of it. But you always have a domestic audience that you have to cater to as well. This is the reality, you know. Okay. Yep. Let, let me move uh, to uh, uh, other questions. And we have about 10 minutes left. Uh, and and I, I'd like to uh, uh, to get your thoughts on uh, two uh, different actors that we didn't mention yet, uh, and which are allies either in Europe or allies in the region, and in particular Israel. I mean, we discussed Gulf states and Saudi Arabia, but correct me if I'm wrong. This would fall more into the category of partners, which have more by nature transactional relationship with the U.S. Uh, and it seems to me much more difficult 
to discuss great power competition in a way with allies such as Israel or Europeans that might not uh, read what's going on the same way as Washington does. Uh, for instance, Gwen, you mentioned the uh, what happened with the F-35 and the fact that U.S. government uh, considered that uh, the cooperation between the UAE and China was a red line, that it could not, uh, it would compromise uh, U.S. Uh, technology uh, at this point. The problem is in the sense, one of the consequences was that the UAE went to France uh, to buy uh, uh, 80 fighter jets, 80 uh, Rafale fighter jets. So one obvious question that comes from, uh, that comes to me after that is, uh, is it possible to have a US uh, coherent policy uh, in the Middle East without consulting and without coordinating with European allies? Otherwise, isn't it uh, doomed to uh, always lead to uh, the Europeans uh, selling what the Americans do not want to sell? Uh, and in Israel, it's a different uh, question, but it's quite remarkable that Israel has uh, a very distinct policies with Russia and China, that Netanyahu who was uh, the, the key architect of the rapprochement with China, uh, and we've seen over the last years how that was becoming a very sensitive topic, uh, in particular with the, 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 the Chinese presence in Haifa port, uh, the U.S. Navy threatening uh, to, uh, to remove or to stop uh, moving to uh, the, uh, the facilities at Haifa port. As far as I know, they, they didn't uh, execute that threat. But how do you make... How, again, it's coming, uh, in a sense, back to the idea of how do you uh, uh, talk to your allies uh, on that topic? How do you make sure that uh, they understand and that they uh, agree with uh, the U.S. concerns on that great power competition? I know it's not an easy question. Sorry. Right. So, okay. How do you how do you talk to your allies? Yeah, uh, not a, not a not an easy question to answer. And we only have about five minutes left. Uh, I will start, I think, by uh, by highlighting that it's well, it's difficult. Uh, it, it's difficult because when you look at uh, what happened with Ukraine again, uh, Israel found itself in a uh, Israel uh, found itself in a difficult position vis-a-vis -vis Russia in particular. Um, from a from a security from a, from a security standpoint, uh, Israel uh, Israel's chief concern was maintaining its freedom of action in Syria, and that depended on a, a fairly uh, good relationship with Russia. So, uh, so when it came to Ukraine, uh, again, f because Israel is a democracy, and not only is it a democracy, but uh, in the Middle East, but uh, a strong, stable democracy with a very large, a sizable minority coming from both uh, Russia and Ukraine as immigrants. This put Israel in a very difficult situation, and and uh, it, it's it, you know it's still a matter it's still a, a matter of uh, a discussion. Uh, the fact of the matter is, the Israeli government only condemned the invasion after a rebuke from Washington. Uh, in the initial stages of the war, and, and you've seen the evolution uh, with a different leadership in Israel. Now we see, of course, Bibi Netanyahu is back, and so this uh, this brings again the issue of how Israel will handle the war in Ukraine. Um, 
so uh, and when it comes to Europeans, I think uh, maybe Grant has more thoughts on this, but uh, but certainly consultations with your allies is a good place to start. And what we've seen uh, in, in Afghanistan in particular, what angered our allies is precisely a lack of uh, uh, consultations with our allies who wanted who were not against our withdrawal, but wanted to handle it differently. Um, so I guess, it, you know, talking to your allies is a good start, uh, but it remains difficult nonetheless. Yeah, Jean-Luc, again, again, great, great questions. One, one nitpick on the on the Rafaels and the UAE. Uh, this is actually an Emirati tactic when they were negotiating the Block 40, Block 50 purchase in the late 90s and early 2000s. They also made a massive purchase of uh, of uh, fighter jets from from Rafael. In my view, to to up their leverage in negotiations with the U.S., I I actually you know think when when you have that much money, uh, you know you can you can afford to make the purchase and use as leverage. And their timing of that deal was just a little bit before the uh, the negotiations over the F thirty five collapse. I think actually what was more concerning was the purchase of the L fifteen trainers uh, shortly after the the negotiations officially broke down. So, but 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 to your broader point, I, I don't have an issue uh, with our European allies and partners uh, and their companies exporting more. Uh, I think, you know, the U.S. has a as the world's largest arms exporter, we have sort of a monopoly on on several capabilities. The, the issue with the U.S. being the largest arms exporter is uh, we don't necessarily have the defense industrial base and capacity to meet orders on a timely fashion. And that creates inherent tension with customers where they place the money down for a bunch of F-16s and then have to wait five, six, seven years before they take delivery, that naturally leads them to, to get frustrated and look elsewhere. And it just creates the sort of reinforcing uh, uh, race to the bottom, I think. And so uh, I, I would love uh, for, for our other partners uh, to, to responsibly uh, uh, support the international uh, uh, trade to, to like-minded countries. But the, the other question is, is how do you coordinate? I think it's got to be a five-step process when it comes to navigating the China relationship. I think the U.S. has to first uh, identify the risks we associate uh, a relationship with China, uh, then sort of from the risks, assess the threat and identify our, our own parameters of comfortability in navigating a relationship with China, and then communicate that those parameters to our partners and and communicate it clearly and consistently and most importantly constantly be constantly apprising them of how we assess the situation uh and then essentially incorporate their feedback into this process into this loop there's not always going to be uniformity i think in where we see a threat in a relationship with china versus where uh, another country may see a threat in a relationship with china we obviously see uh, a big threat when uh, a Chinese state-owned enterprise buys a controlling stake in a port. That perhaps is not always a shared agreement. There's the, the Hamburg agreement in Germany right now is sort of uh, underwriting that 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 point. And then I think the final step is is to just simply keep flexible and uh, and understand that this is sort of a moving target and only through working professionally, with our partners and our allies incorporating their feedback and uh, and identifying and conveying sort of our assessment can we have a china policy that i think avoids sort of undue turbulence and and ultimately makes uh, makes everyone work together a little bit more efficiently thank you very much uh, uh, i'm afraid we're gonna have to stop here i don't see any uh, 
uh, other hand raised. Uh, thank you both for uh, um, engaging with us for uh, for one hour on all these questions. Uh, as we said, uh, tough questions, but uh, necessary to uh, to address. Uh, as you, I hope you've seen, uh, Singapore uh, is constantly discussing the topic of uh, great power competition, not just today, but historically. So it's uh, always a pleasure uh, to have uh, the, the, the Institute coming uh, for uh, this discussion. And uh, we hope we'll have other uh, opportunities uh, to continue the conversation. Obviously, the the, the, the answers to all these questions remain open uh, as events evolve on the ground. Uh, we, we hope uh, you enjoy the rest of your stay here. And uh, thank you again uh, for your uh, presence here today. Thank you all. Thank you so much.